I think we can all relate and have all been in times where we've been plunged into sadness in our lives, where we've experienced a tragedy, we've lost someone who we love. So it's easy for us to conjure the feelings of sadness that you might feel in the midst of suffering. And so that's the motion we're trying to tackle this morning and we're going to look at a little bit this morning. But we've been on this journey for a little while now and we looked uh, at the first week at the story of Job and we saw that kind of the first emotion we experience in the midst of suffering is confusion as our, our illusions, as our control over the world around us that we perceive begins to crumble and crash. And then quickly after that, we turn to anger as we begin to blame God or anybody else for the situation that we find ourselves in. And so we looked at the story of Lazarus and we saw how both Mary and Martha reacted in anger because Jesus could have come and saved Lazarus, their brother, but he didn't. He delayed on purpose. And, and so they were angry with him. And Martha, in the end, eventually surrenders her anger to the Lord and says, but I trust you, whatever you want to do, do it. And then last week, we saw how denial or doubt can easily creep in in our lives as we're in times of trial and suffering, that we begin to want to be out of those times. We want to not feel the pain that we're feeling, and so we try and avoid it. We try and pretend like it's not happening in our lives. So we explored Jesus' journey of suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane and how he took it on, how he owned it and he claimed it, though at the same time, even though he was owning it and claiming it, he still questioned God. He still asked God that if there was any other way, the Father, that if there was any other way for the Father to make salvation happen other than him drinking the cup of wrath that he was facing, uh, that could we just do that way? And yet God's answer wasn't the answer that he was looking for particularly, and Jesus knew that ahead of time, so Jesus surrenders his will, says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And so this sadness comes into Jesus' life, and we see in this prayer that Jesus prays that, that he knows sadness is about to come upon his disciples. And so when he prays this high priestly prayer in the upper room, uh, we have recorded in John 17, he's praying for his disciples, but he's not just praying for his disciples. One of the most amazing things about the passage in John 17 is that he also prays for who? Yeah, all of us. That he says, I don't just pray for these only, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. And so if you believe in Jesus because the word of, uh, of the apostles were passed down and shared with us about who Jesus was, then you are that person that Jesus is praying for in John 17. And he pray, prays this prayer, I think, because he knows the deep pain and sadness that's going to be a part of our journeys in following him. He says it in his own words in that prayer, right? And so there's some warnings, there's some thoughts that we can take from this prayer and from this idea of sadness in Jesus' ministry and in his life and as he suffered. The first thing I think that we see is that sadness can isolate us. How many of you have ever felt isolated because of sadness in your life? 
Whether it's just because the sadness and the despair that you're going through in your experience draws you into kind of a silence and solitude and away from other people because you just don't feel like being around other people and that depression begins to isolate you. Or whether it's because as you immerse yourself around other people, they don't seem to understand your pain. And so you feel alone, even in the midst of others, you feel like they don't understand you and they're not with you. Whatever it is, I think that one of the most dangerous things things behind sadness is that sadness can tend to isolate us. And so I think that's why when Jesus prays this prayer for his disciples in that upper room, he specifically prays that God would prepare them and would protect them from the evil one. That he wouldn't allow, that the Father wouldn't allow the twelve to be scattered and isolated and separated, but that they would remain as one. And so we see that that's specifically what he prays. And we see Paul. Paul later kind of echoes the words of Jesus in this prayer. Remember what Jesus says in this prayer? He says that they might make my joy complete, right, in themselves. That they might make my joy complete in themselves. And Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2 as he's encouraging the people of Philippi that have become followers of Jesus. He says, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind. Be of the same mind. And this also is is the big push and emphasis in Jesus' prayer in John 17 is the unity of the people of God. He prays that we, all of us, and that the 12 would be one as Jesus and the Father, as the Son and the Father are one. So he prays that we would be strengthened in our unity, that we would be there to support one another. Now, I've preached on John 17 quite a bit in this church, and I've pointed out how silly it would be if the Son and the Father reflected the kind of unity we often have in the church, right? I imagine Jesus at that Last Supper saying, no, 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 I don't, we don't think red wine shouldn't be it. I really like Chardonnay. Let's do a white wine instead of a red wine, right? Imagine the father fighting back. No, but red, it looks like blood. It should be, I mean, obviously the symbolism here, you're missing it, right? And yet this is kind of the arguments we tend to have as a church, right? This is the kind of stuff and the level of pettiness we let divide us in the church so that when we come upon times of sadness and sorrow, we use those divisions and those angers to divide ourselves away from each other and to be isolated and easier pickings for the evil one. The Bible warns us about this in Ecclesiastes. It says that the accord of three strands is not easily broken, right? We are stronger as a whole, as a unified body, we are stronger together than we are individually. We cannot allow ourselves to be divided because if we allow ourselves to be divided over petty issues, when times of difficulty come, when times of sorrow come, of sadness come, we will be easily drawn into isolation and picked off by the evil one and lose our faith. Because it's easy in sadness to be isolated. But we also see in Jesus' own words, and we see in some other parts of Scripture, that joy can be found in sadness. Now, it seems like an oxymoron, right? Doesn't that seem like a contradiction? But it's because we often define joy the way the world defines joy, and they define it basically as a synonym of happiness, right? Right? 
How many of you, when you think of the word joy, just immediately think of happiness? A few of you. And yet the way scripture talks about joy is something drastically different than happiness. In fact, in Paul's probably saddest letter is the letter where he uses the word joy more than any other place in scripture. He uses it dozens and dozens of times inside of the book of Philippians. And yet it's in the book of Philippians where he acknowledges that he's facing a trial that he doesn't know what the outcome's going to be and he thinks that there's a good likelihood he might die. And so he's in intense pain and intense suffering as he's facing for his very life some kind of trial that we don't know what it was. And, and so at that point, he's writing to encourage the Philippians and he uses this word joy over and over and over again. Someone in our church this week, uh, saw what I was preaching on, and they kind of came across like a daily devotional, and it was this quote, and they gave it to me. They said, this, this really spoke to them for the passage in John 17. Joy is not happiness so much as gladness. It is the ecstasy in a soul that has made peace with God and is ready to do his will. And is ready to do his will. What an amazing thought. We don't know who said it. It just was quoted as unknown. Yeah, what an amazing thought about what joy can be for us. That joy, even in the midst of sadness, can be felt because it's an it's a outpouring of trust and surrender to the will of God and the peace that we know that he's in control. Right? We feel joy even in the midst of deepest sorrow because we trust God so much that we know that he's working all things for the good of those who love him. Jesus did. And the scripture says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You guys have heard me use this illustration before, but I protested against the movie, The Passion of the Christ, because of some theological reasons, and I was really strong in my theological convictions, and I refused to watch it. But years later, I was preaching on the crucifixion, and I decided to watch it just to soften my own heart to the realities, the horror of the crucifixion. And as I watched it, there was one part, one part that made me break down into tears so that I was uncontrollably weeping, and it was the moment when Jesus was carrying the cross, and he falls, and Mary comes, and, and she's, as she's running to him, she sees him falling as a boy and she's comforting him. But that's not the part that made me cry. The part that made me cry is when she gets to him, Jesus looks at her and he said, mama, look, I make all things new. And then he stands up with confidence and he carries that cross for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. What a beautiful image of that verse put into film. Jesus knew what his sacrifice and what his sorrow was leading for for all of us. He trusted in the Father 100%. And so he found joy even in the deepest, darkest sadness this world has ever had to offer. In the midst of being crucified. That brings us to our last point. That there can be purpose to sadness. There can be purpose to sadness. 
I think sometimes the reason why we feel anger around our suffering and our confusion and our, our sadness and sorrow and our loss is because we feel like there's no purpose to it. It's because we feel like this is senseless. Why am I enduring this right now? Why am I going through this? This is garbage. I can't see the purpose of it. And so because we lose a sense that there can be purpose in the sadness, we begin to fall away. And yet I think that we see over and over again an illustration in Scripture that God uses all things for his glory, even suffering, even trials. He turns it all, as our opening song has said for the last several weeks, into beautiful things because of his grace and his mercy to transform even the most disgusting of things into his will. That's hard for us in the midst of it to grasp that. But know this, that Jesus calls his disciples to be a city on a hill. He calls them to be on a a city on a hill. Now he knows. He knows the pain that they're going to endure. He knows that out of all of those 12 who are following him, that one will be cast off as as one who has rejected him and that the other uh, 10 of the 11 will all die for his name. They will all be martyred according to our traditions. And he knows that. He warns them about it. He tells them that if the world does this to him, their master, that they should expect no less for themselves if they follow after him. And it's why he tells them that they must take up their cross and follow him. Preparing them for the suffering that they're going to face, for the sorrow they're going to be in the midst of as they attempt to follow after him in this world. And yet, though he promises them that they're going to focus they're going to face suffering. He gives them a call. And the call is to be what? A city on a hill. A light, not covered, but shining before all men. So that's your call. Even in the times when you experience deep sadness and suffering, it's still your call to reflect the light and the glory of God. How do you do that? How do you, how do you trust in that kind of a way? Well, Brennan Manning, Manning in one of his books tells a story about trust. And his story is relayed by a missionary who was home on furlough and he was staying up at a friend's cottage at a lake. And he was tinkering around the missionary in a uh, boathouse nearby. His wife was in the kitchen and his three kids were playing on the lawn of the cottage. Uh, four-year-old, seven-year-old, and a 12-year-old. And at some point, the four-year-old little boy wanders away from the seven-year-old and 12-year-old, and they don't notice that he goes down to the river, I mean, down to the lake, and he goes out onto the dock, and he's kind of staring at this aluminum boat that's there, and he's fascinated by it. They don't see him as he loses his footing, and he falls into an eight-foot-deep section of the lake right there. All of a sudden, When they hear the splash, the 12-year-old turns and screams, and the dad hears the scream of his 12-year-old daughter, and so he runs out, and he runs to the lake, automatically knowing what's happening, and he dives into the water to save his son. He goes down into the water, and he's groping around, looking for him. He can't find him. He loses his breath. He goes up to the surface, (gasps) catches breath. He goes back down. He's groping around. He's looking for his son. He can't find him. He (gasps) goes back up, gets breath. Finally, he dives down. He sees the little boy. What's the little boy doing? Clinging 
to a wooden pier that's sunk underneath the lake. And so he grabs the boy and he pries him off of this wooden pier and he brings him up to the surface and he gets him to the shore and he says, son, what were you doing underneath there? And he said, I was waiting for you, daddy. This is the kind of trust that we're called to have as Christians, that we are waiting on our daddy, the creator of all things, to rescue us out of even the darkest and and deepest of sorrowful times. That we would trust in him, that we know he's going to come, and he's going to come rescue us. And imagine this, picture this, that that trust is not unwarranted. That trust is not something that's founded on a hollow promise or something that's just unfounded, but instead it's founded upon a man who is called the man of sorrows. The man who would come and live a perfect life as a human being so that he may suffer under the penalty of sin for us. So that in him, we might find freedom and life for all eternity. We don't trust in a God who doesn't understand your sorrow. We trust in a God who has felt every sadness you've felt and walks alongside you in the midst of it. And we place ourselves into his hands, knowing that he is good to save. Even in the deepest and darkest times of sadness. And we cast ourselves on him saying, we knew you were going to come. We knew you were going to rescue us.